Well, good morning, everybody. I uh, want to go ahead and say up front here that if this sermon is really bad this weekend, I am blaming it entirely on March Madness. Um, I have no idea how you expect me to concentrate when Carolina goes down by 19 points in the first two minutes of every game and then comes back to win. I don't know how I'm supposed to concentrate. Then we've got the rematch of the century this afternoon, and then it's time change weekend. And so if it's really bad, it is not my fault. I'm not taking any responsibility for it. Um, hey, before we get started this weekend, I want to tell you um, just really that what you saw here in the video right before um, I got up here at all of our campuses um, is something that you're going to see for the next several weeks, not that same video, but um, videos like that when telling you about what we call our Believe Project, which is a special fund here at the Summit Church that we have um, to help us expand our ministries and our facilities here um, to reach the triangle. Now, I know that some of you, um, you hate it when churches talk about money. And uh, to be totally honest with you and upfront, I do too. Um, I really do. And I do not want to be that church that is, is always talking about money. It's just that there are primarily three avenues through which people give here at the Summit Church. The first avenue is what we call our general offering. And uh, that's really just the lifeblood of our church. That's what enables us to do all that we do, um, everything from our kids' ministries to our community outreach to just being the church and, and, uh, and, and reaching our city. That's our general offering. The second avenue that people give through here is what we call um, our, our special missions offering, which we usually do around Christmas time, which is money that we give away entirely. Um, to uh, things going on overseas, to ministries, um, to our community that are outside of our church. And that is a, a money that we just give out of our church to, to groups that we believe in and we think are really getting the job done. Um, the third way that we give here at the Summit Church is to this thing that we call the Believe Project, which is a fund that goes specifically and exclusively to help us expand our facilities so that we can reach more people in the Triangle. Now, if you've been here any amount of time, you know that we are not a big, beautiful building church kind of church. I mean, you can just look around and tell that. Uh, it's like you've heard me say, ghetto is one of our values at the Summit Church. Uh, we don't believe in making things plush or posh or however you say that, um, and a lot of luxury. Um, we just want to be able to have it so we can get the job done, but you got to have something to get the job done. Uh, and so we try to do a minimal kind of how, what do we got to do to be able to accommodate the people that God is bringing toward us. I realize, by the way, okay, I realize that we're not the only church um, that's here that needs to be able to reach people. But you understand there are 1.8 million people in the Triangle region, and it is one of the fastest growing areas um, in, the, in the country. For the last four or five years in a row, the Raleigh-Durham area has been ranked one of the most strategic places to move, to get a job, to live. 1.8 million and growing rapidly. And that means that if we are going to reach this community, it's going to take a lot more than our church. And so we pray for, and we want to bless other churches, and we do what we can to help catalyze their growth as well. But that said, we got to do our part. And our part is reaching as many people as God enables us to reach. And so we have to expand our facilities so that we can reach those that God um, is bringing to us. And we got new campuses that we need to open. We got improvements at the various campuses that need to happen. We got a parking lot we need to build because some of you are tired of walking a half mile to get to church in the rain. I understand that. Um, we have the Cary Apex campus, which is looming. The launch of that is, is going to be around the corner here before too long. I've heard some chatter about Chapel Hill and how lost that place is. And uh, the fact that we need to do something there. Put simply, believe enables us to get the gospel to more people in our own community by helping us build the facilities to accommodate them. Now, you're like, well, I don't think churches ought to spend a lot on buildings. I don't either. 
Okay, we don't spend a lot on buildings, relatively speaking. You're like, well, well, shouldn't you give that money to the poor? Yes, we should. Okay, and here's why I say that. Because what you give, what we give to this actually multiplies in what we're able to give away. Um, about seven years ago, most of you weren't here seven years ago, I realize that, but about seven years ago, a relatively small group of you, about 800, gave a little over $2 million, which is what enabled us to get to where we are right now. And here this weekend, we're going to have over 5,000 people at our church, and last year alone, we gave away a million dollars. So what's happening is that money that was invested there, thank you for the one person that gave away a million dollars last year. Um, <laughs> Uh, what, what happens is the money that you invest in that multiplies in what we're able to give away. And so um, this is something that we're here for the long haul. We want to reach this community. We want to pour ourselves out. And this is the way that we do that. Now, listen, if this, I, I do not want this to be burdensome to you for the next few weeks. Uh, I mean this without a drop or an ounce of rhetoric, okay? If this does not excite you, if this does not get you going, don't give, honestly we got enough people at this church who believe in the mission and ministry of this church that if this is a burden to you, don't think about it. Don't give. We don't, we, we don't want that. All right? I, stick around. You know, hang out. Feel free to just be here. Maybe one day, and I don't mean this patronistically, but maybe one day you will believe in the mission that God has given to this church. And then at that point, when you can eagerly and enthusiastically with joy and without you know, a sense of dread jump in, then do it then. But if now if it feels like it's a burden or drudgery, don't give. I totally mean that. Okay, give your money somewhere else. But if you do believe in the mission of this church and you're, you're vested and you're all in, this is going to be a, a, a few weeks where we try to highlight what's there in front of us, and I would invite you to do that. I think you even got something in your worship guide today that probably looks a little bit like this. Get it on the camera, like that. And, uh, and so you can check that out. All right? You got your Bible? You got your Bible? Good. I want you to take it uh, out, and I want you to open it to the Gospel of Luke. I want you to open it to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 3 to be specific. I told you last week that the Gospel of Luke is in many ways a gospel that's written for skeptics. Gospel that's written for people that have a lot of problems or a lot of questions as to how Jesus could really be the Son of God. I, I, I had a friend last week that after the message sent me a text message that said, so, you know, I've never really realized this before, but most people reject the gospel of Jesus not because it's illogical, but because it was so unexpected and so surprising, so different than what they thought God would be like or how they thought God would come. And, and he said, I've never realized that, that it, it's not that, that people have a logical problem. That's actually a very small minority of people. It's that it's just so, so unexpected. And I think he's exactly right. Last year, I was on the campus of UNC listening to a debate with Bart Ehrman. Dr. Ehrman, as many of you know, has sold thousands of books uh, claiming that the Bible contradicts itself, and that's a reason that we cannot believe the Bible, but he's often said very publicly that the reason that he doesn't believe is not because of problems he has with the Bible, it's the problem, he says, of suffering in the world, unjust suffering. I was at this debate last year when a student asked him, they said, Dr. Ehrman, what would it be that would make you believe? What could Jesus have done that would have made you believe. I mean, I would have thought the resurrection was, was one of those things. But, but what is it that Jesus could have done that would make you believe? And Dr. Ehrman said, very simply, and I think very clearly, he said, well, if Jesus had just done what he said, if he brought peace on earth and he had ended injustice, then he said, I would believe. Now, what he is saying, listen, what he is saying is that his central problem with Jesus, his central problem with Jesus is not 
really a contradiction. It's that he did not do, Jesus did not do what Bart Ehrman thought he should do. Now, that's fair, and he is certainly entitled to his position. But I at least want you to recognize that that is exactly, exactly what made most of the people in Jesus' day reject him too. That's not new. That's not new. Jesus' crucifixion was a joint project of both the secular and the religious establishments because they were surprised and disappointed by him. He wasn't at all what they were hoping for or what they thought they needed. You see, in many ways, the Roman world of Jesus' day was primed for a world leader. Caesar claimed to be that world ruler. He said, I'll bring peace on earth, I will end injustice, I'll stop suffering, and I'll make everybody act right. Now, on the other side of the fence, you had the Jews who were also waiting for a world governmental and religious leader called the Messiah. And that guy, of course, you know, they thought was certainly not Caesar, but essentially they wanted him to do the same things. They wanted him to end injustice. They thought he would end suffering. They thought he'd make everybody act right. They had very different definitions, of course, about what good was and who the king's favorite people would be, but they were all looking for a world ruler who would bring justice and end suffering and make everybody behave. Now, aren't these the same exact things that people are still looking for today and wanting and promising? Isn't that what Dr. Ehrman was saying that he wanted? Somebody to restore justice on earth, somebody to end suffering, somebody to make people act right? Isn't that what government, science, and education still promise? From Caesar to Muhammad to many politicians today, we want somebody who will do those three things. Somebody who will restore justice, somebody who will end suffering, somebody who will make everybody act right. Jesus, as you will see today, promised all of those same things. But he would choose a very different path to get there than that which is chosen by every other world religious leader. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but the bottom line was this. Jesus taught that our salvation was such that it required much more than behavior modification. It required a deep soul change. Because not only did we do wrong things, we did wrong things because we loved wrong things. And to simply show up and command us to do right or to offer rewards for doing right was not enough. Because God wants people who obeyed him from the heart who do what is right because they love what is right, not because they love rewards or hate punishment. Jesus taught that he could not just restore justice in the world unless he destroyed all of us in the process. I mean, if God purged the world of all evil tonight at 12.05, how many of you would still be here at 12.06? None of you. Right? So Jesus is like, I can't just restore justice in the world and save all of you. Right? Furthermore, Jesus could not end suffering without ending sin because that would be like taking away the pain of cancer from the cancer patient without actually taking away the cancer. You still got the disease and the disease is spreading and it's going to kill you, but the pain's gone. That's not a cure. Jesus' kingdom was unexpected because he saw the problems of mankind differently. Make no mistake about it. Listen, Jesus aspired to be the king and savior of the whole world. He was in direct competition with world religious leaders and people like Caesar. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke uses a number of phrases right up front for Jesus that would have been very offensive to Roman governmental leaders. Right? Uh, he called Jesus the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, called what his message, called it a gospel. Um, we have archaeologic evidence, archaeological evidence that shows that there were inscriptions on Roman buildings from before the time of Jesus that referred to Caesar as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. 
the message of his rule was called a gospel, and he was referred to by the Romans as the Son of God. What Luke is saying is, no, that's not Caesar, that's Jesus. Jesus offered a hope you could believe in. He offered a new world order. But the path he chose was very different than every other aspiring world governmental or religious leader because he saw the problems of mankind differently. Now, you're going to see all this come to a head in the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. You ever hear somebody say that all religions are essentially the same? If you are paying attention today, you will see how absolutely wrong that is. How you see Jesus come head to head with every other religious claim in the world and totally reject it and choose a different path. All right? So if you got your Bible, Luke chapter 3, and we're going to go through part of chapter 3 and part of chapter 4. Now, I sincerely hope that you have your theological big boy pants on this morning because this is, a, this is one of the deepest messages I've preached in a while and because uh, it's one of the most enigmatic scenes in the life of Jesus. And so I really need you to stay awake, to pay attention, because if you blink, you're going to get left behind. Right, not Kirk Cameron left behind, but, but left behind, okay? Um, so I need you to stay up and don't miss any of the, the, the pieces of this because we're, gonna, we're going somewhere in a hurry with this thing. All right, it's very important, very, um, very, very core to who Jesus is. Did you know, by the way, every single gospel writer includes the baptism of Jesus. You say, well, what's significant about that? Not all of them include his birth. We have a holiday that celebrates his birth, but not every gospel writer included his birth. But all of them include the baptism because all of them saw this as the summation and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 21. Luke 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now what is curious about this is that Luke calls this a baptism of repentance. Now, repentance is when you admit that you've done something wrong and say you're sorry, right? That's what repentance is. What had Jesus done wrong? That's the question that's screaming out from this baptism. In fact, John the Baptist even asked Jesus that. He's like, uh, why are you here to be baptized? What have you done wrong? You know, I mean, you're here to say you're sorry for being so perfect. Is that why you're here? What are you repenting for? All right, that's a great question. So we're going to come back to it. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jump all the way to Luke 4. Luke 4, verse 1, and Jesus, it says, full of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's another curious little phrase, isn't it? Because wasn't Jesus God? So wasn't he always full of the Holy Spirit since he was God and the Holy Spirit was God? And so wouldn't he have been, by definition, always full of the Holy Spirit? That is another great question. You guys are totally on your game this morning. And so we're going to come back to that too. Right? So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Now, just so that you don't get any, any romanticized ideas about this, this was not a camping trip that Jesus took with some of his buddies out in the Yukon. I heard a guy one time compare a trip that he took with some of his buddies out to hike in Wyoming to Jesus' time in the wilderness here. Not at all. Okay, first, this is an area called Jeshimon, which literally means in Hebrew, the devastation. It was a terrifying place. It was difficult to traverse. There was harsh climates. Uh, it, the, the conditions were terrible. This was a horrible place to spend 40 days, six weeks, alone with the devil. I mean, not even some JV demon, El Diablo himself, right, and Jesus, 40 days. I can, seriously, I cannot imagine a worse situation. I hate being alone for long periods of time. I hate not eating. I hate being in the desert. I hate camping out. And I hate being alone with Satan. 
Okay, so this is like five things that would make this the worst time of your life. And he ate, it says, verse 2, nothing in those days. He fasted. And when they were ended, he was hungry. That's another one of those places where, you know, I'm like, did that really need to be clarified? I mean, who is it that didn't know that? Verse 3, so the devil says to him, if, if you are the Son of God, command that this stone become bread. Excuse me, if, if you are the Son of God, what is that a reference to? What had God the Father just spoken over him at the, at the baptism? Remember that? You are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. And now Satan is saying, if what God said is actually true. Look, you can mark this down. You can write it down. This is Satan's primary strategy in your life. To put question marks in your life where God has put periods. Or where God has put exclamation points. That's what he did then. That's what he does now. And it's what he's going to do in the future. All right? Verse where are we? Verse 4. But Jesus answered him and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, what is Satan tempting Jesus with here? Is there anything really sinful about eating a yeast roll? Right? I mean, no. I mean, if you're eating 10 of them at Golden Corral, maybe. But, but if you've been fasting for 40 days, I feel like you're entitled to a yeast roll. Here's the temptation. You ought to jot this down. Temptation number one. Temptation is to love the gifts of God more than you love God himself. To love the gifts of God more than you love God himself. To take a good thing like bread or marriage or children or money or friendship, right? To take companionship, to make a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. And Jesus said, no, physical bread is good, but it is not as important as God. God is the bread for my soul. My soul finds its completeness in God, not in 